have a question for you as we begin tonight. What would you do if two lesbians walked into the church building for services? Or more precisely, as the, art, as the headline of the article which I read actually said, what would you do if two lesbians walked into your church just to provoke you? That's what happened at Gateway Church in Austin. I want each of us to really think about that question for a moment and our personal response to that scenario. And the reason I want us to think about it is because that scenario becomes more and more a possibility every day that goes by. As we know, inroads are constantly being made by those who want to militantly try to force us to accept as normal that which God has repeatedly said is sinful and abominable in his sight. That which God has said those who practice will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 1, 18 through 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and a host of others. But all throughout our society, you turn on the TV, it seems like every new show that comes on has to have its homosexual couple. It seems like commercials are just more and more and more flaunting this. They want us to accept as normal that which God says is an abomination, that which God says is sinful. It is an agenda of sinful and godless abomination which our government is seeking to normalize and force acceptance and glorification of as well. You know that now some congregations are taking out insurance on not only their building and their properties, but on their preachers because of libel and lawsuits, because if he preaches what the Bible says about homosexuality, there are probably homosexual couples in this town. When you go into other towns, you see them. So again, I ask the question, what would you do if a homosexual couple walked in hand in hand, stared you in the face, just looking for trouble? Because that is exactly what happens in a congregation in Texas, a denomination, but nonetheless, a congregation in Texas, according to a story from charismanews.com. I would like to share with you part of that story the title was, When Two Lesbians Walk Into a Church Seeking Trouble. Let's just go for fun. We'll see how much we can push their buttons. Amy teased her girlfriend, who didn't like the idea of hanging around a bunch of Christians. Come on, Amy insisted. I hear their motto is, come as you are. I just want to prove that they're come as you are, unless you're gay. Amy had been in a nine-year lesbian relationship that had broken up, leaving her wondering why her deepest longings could never be satisfied. She and Rachel had just started hanging out when they decided to attend one Sunday morning. Amy admitted, I came on a mission to shock people. Rachel and I would hold hands in front of people. And again, this real rubber meets the road 2022 sermon. What would you do? How would you react? Male or female couple if they walked in? Let me read the rest of the story. 
Amy admitted, I came on a mission to shock people. Rachel and I would hold hands in front of people. But instead of the disgusted looks of contempt that we expected, people met eyes with us and treated us like real people. So we started coming to church weekly. We kept moving closer to the front each week, trying to get a reaction so that we would be rejected sooner rather than later. Listen to this. When we couldn't shock people, we stopped trying and started learning. Not long after that, Rachel and I stopped seeing each other, but I kept coming to church because I was searching for something, Amy admitted. I definitely wasn't looking to change. It wasn't my lesbian lifestyle I was bringing to God, but, but I wondered if God had answers to my deeper longings. The problem was I didn't trust God at all. But the more I listened and learned about the teachings of Jesus, the more I started to actually believe that God really did love me. I heard more and more about being his masterpiece. And in time, I started to believe it. The more I believed God actually could see something of value in me, the more I trusted him. Over time, Amy slowly opened her heart and struggles to Christ. She said it took several years, but as I moved closer and closer to Christ, he gently took me on a very surprising journey. First, I found out my father had nine affairs while I was growing up, a secret that rocked my world. I began to learn how the roots of my sexual issues tied together with my dad's, just like him, I was using people to try to find that which I was searching for. Amy continued to grow in her knowledge of the scriptures, falling more and more in love with the Lord. And at that point, the story goes on and, and talks about some of the terrible abuses that she had suffered at the hands of men as a child, a very young child, and how that helped lead her toward the direction her life had taken. But finally, this last paragraph, she said, I realize God knows more about me than I know about myself, and he wants to bring healing to these wounds. So I fully gave him my heart and body, everything. As I continued to seek him, the lesbian struggles fell away. I'm not saying that's how God works with everyone, but it's how he's healing me. The more I focus on God's love for me, the less I want anything to get in the way of his work in me. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that what we're here for? That brings us to some very serious questions, and, and tonight's sermon is kind of a follow-up to this morning's on, on compassion, and, and not by any stretch negating or neutralizing the truth of God's word. Never. Sin is never right. That's why I gave you the introduction to this that I did. Sin is never right. No, not complying with God's commands is, is always wrong. But there are some very serious questions we need to consider when it comes to the inevitable encounter that is going to happen, it's going to happen sooner or later in today's society. How are we going to respond when that happens, brethren? Are we going to respond with looks of disgust and disdain or with eyes full of love for the lost and the hopeless? because that's exactly what they are. Are we going to respond with avoidance and rejection? 
or with warm greetings and words of welcome, with furtive glances and hidden whispers, or with love and gratitude to Christ Jesus that they came. I guess the even greater question is, I want us to think about this, why would we or should we treat them any differently than we do other lost souls and lost sinners showing up at the church building? For example, why would we treat them any differently or less warmly than we do, for example, the couple that comes to services that's living together and not married? The couple that's living in adultery? Why should we treat them any differently or less warmly than we do those who drink, those who party, those who smoke and harm their body, those who steal maybe from their place of employment? Why should we treat them any different than those who are caught up in the sin of covetousness or those caught up in the sin of idolatry such as denominationalism? Why should we treat them any different than we do those who are caught up in the sin of envy and greed? How do we respond to those folks when they come through the door? People that are living together or people that are, that are gamblers or greedy. How do we treat them? The denominationally idolatrous. Do we treat them with furtive glances and hidden whispers? Or with warm welcomes and greetings, just hoping, just hoping that they will hear something during the lesson that will make them want to know more about Jesus. Something that will open the door for those caught in those other sins to learn more about the only way to salvation through Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's what we want. Question, really think about this. Are those who are living in adultery or idolatry? Are those who are living in revelry, partying all the time, really any different or any better or any more noble and less of a sinner than those who are living in homosexuality? Not according to God. They're all in the same boat. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is by no means a defense of the abomination of homosexuality. But what it is, is hopefully some very thought-provoking material that will help us to do the right thing at the right time. Again, those living in adultery, idolatry, revelry are no different. And those who are caught up in that sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. But there's more than one sinner listed here in this list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revelers. Y'all know what revelers are, right? People are always partying. Nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He said none of them are going to. They're all in the same boat. Those sins are unacceptable to God. All of them. None of those people who continue to live like that without repenting and turning to God, verse 11, are going to see the kingdom of God. They're not going to live in the kingdom of God. 
And if, you, if we were to go back up and read, which I won't because of time, but if we were to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 that leads up to this, you'll find out that it also talks about, although the words aren't mentioned, the sins of covetousness and the sin of being an extortioner to a degree. All of those sins, every one of them listed there, every single one of them requires the blood of Christ for forgiveness. Is that right? They're all on the same level, right? Jesus had to die for the, for the revelers and the idolaters and all of that just as much as any of those others. They're all on the same level. Same thing it tells us in Galatians chapter 5. Please turn there. Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we know the text well, but listen carefully. Verses 19 through 21. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. You ever had an angry outburst? Just saying. Selfish ambitions, dissensions. Heresies, envy, 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 murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand just as I told you in time past. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This list of these people that are involved in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. These people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these sins are on the same level. Anybody who continues to practice any of these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, how do we treat the greedy gambler, the sexually immoral couple, or the idolatrous denominationalist when they come through those doors on a Sunday morning as a visitor? How do we treat them? I'll tell you how we treat them. I'll tell you how we better treat them. We treat those people with the love and compassion of Christ, don't we? Don't we? We better. We love to have visitors, don't we? I mean, where, where? better for sinners to come than to the Lord's church. And so we love them. Why? Because we approve of their sin? No. We don't approve of sin. Sin is never right. But because we are glad they came, that's why we treat them with love and mercy, because we are glad they came knowing there is no other place in the world that they need to be more precisely because of their sin. <laughs> it's not an approval of sin to approve of sinners. It is not an approval of sin to welcome sinners. We love them and welcome them all precisely because of their sin and the fact that Jesus Christ, this Jesus that we have to give them is the only answer for, cure for, and way out of an avenue to the Father. He's the only cure for what ails them. He's it. He's the only answer to their problem. He's the only way out of that sin. He is the only avenue to the Father. In all of those cases. Some may say, well, yeah, I know, but I thought the sin of homosexuality was an abomination to God. It is. No doubt, yeah, it is. The Bible tells us that in Leviticus 18, verse 22. Leviticus 20, verse 13, the word is there. It's an abomination. And, and just while we're on the topic, 
So is cross-dressing. Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. That couldn't be any clearer while we're on the subject. But here's the thing. Here's, here's the thing. The word abomination is not just limited to those sorts of sins. Did you know that the word abomination, this, this is shocking, okay? Until you really hear it the first time and think about it. Did you know that the word abomination occurs in the Bible, in the American Standard Translation, the American Standard Version Translation, the word abomination occurs 157 times in 143 verses. That's a whole lot of abomination. 157 times in 143 verses in the American Standard Version Bible, and brethren, those do not all have to do with the sin of homosexuality and its related deviancies. For example, did you know, and other versions will use some of these, uh, some of these texts, the actual word abomination will occur there as well. Did you know that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to God. Did you know that dishonest scales, or today we might say those who use shady business practices, are an abomination to the Lord? Proverbs 11, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 10. Proverbs 20, verse 23. We have somebody come into the building who's a shady businessman. We've had dealings with them, and we know that they have a reputation for not always dealing justly and fairly. Let me ask you a question. Do we welcome them into the church services? Do we? Are we glad they came so they can learn about Jesus? Absolutely. But their, their sin is an abomination to God. You have three references from the Old Testament I just gave you. Did you know that those who are proud in heart are an abomination to the Lord as well? That very word is used. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 5 and 6 says, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That, that pretty well takes, God couldn't make that any clearer. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. There's a beautiful promise there, too, brethren. Yes, those who are proud in heart are an abomination to the Lord. You ever been proud of heart? Do you know people that are? Would you love for them to come to church and learn about Jesus? Would you welcome them? Absolutely. Because they need Jesus. But the beauty is, in that same passage in Proverbs 16, 5 and 6, it says, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. There's an answer. There's an answer for their sin of a proud heart that's such an abomination. If they could just learn the fear of the Lord, they'd depart from that evil. The fact is that I'm trying to make here, the, the connection I'm trying to make is that the Lord used the same word, abomination in condemnation of all those sins. And so that puts all of those sins, including the sin of homosexuality, on the same level in God's eyes. And, and that's something that needs to click with us. It also puts all of those people who continually keep on committing all of those sins that the Bible says are an abomination, without repentance or forgiveness, on the same level in the eyes of God. What is that level? They're lost. 
They're lost. They're lost. And desperately in need of Christ. Who's going to give them Christ if we don't? You know what else is abominable to God? You know what else is an abomination to God? Let's turn to Proverbs 6. 157 times in 143 verses in the American Standard Version, and many other translations will have a lot of those, we see the word abomination. Proverbs chapter 6. See, I don't understand how they could be caught up in that sin. What a terrible thing it is. Agreed. But my question is, have we ever been caught up in a sin that God would consider an abomination and put on the same level? As I said this morning, we don't all struggle with the same things. Proverbs 6, beginning at verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. God does not approve of these things. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he'll be broken without remedy. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. These are all abominations to God. A proud look. I'm better than you are. You ain't as good as I am. I'm a better Christian than you are. I'm not being serious. I'm just saying that's what a proud look is about. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. Those are an abomination to God. A heart that devises wicked plans. Those are an abomination to God. Feet that are swift in running to evil. That is an abomination to God. A false witness who speaks lies. That is a, an abomination to God. And one who sows discord among brethren. All of these practices are every bit as an abomination every bit as much of an abomination to God as homosexuality. And I would just throw this out. In the church, the brother or sister who continues in the abomination of sowing discord amongst brethren probably is even worse because they ought to know better. Hebrews 10, 26 and James 4, 17. And so if all of these are an abomination to God, why should we treat those who commit the abominable sin of homosexuality any differently than those who devise evil schemes or sow discord amongst brethren or who are greedy or who commit adultery or who practice idolatry or any other sin? They're all sins that God finds abominable. They're all sins that Jesus has the answer for. Jesus has the cure for. And maybe... One of the first things that would help us to extend grace and compassion to those caught up in sins that we're not caught up in, whatever they are, is to realize and to understand that all sin is an abomination to God. A proud look is what it says. You ever been proud? You ever lied to somebody? You ever practiced that? You ever... You ever uh, devise something that wasn't quite right in your heart. All sin is an abomination to God. And, and so what we need to understand is our sin is abominable too. 
Our sin cost Jesus his blood, just like their sin cost Jesus his blood. There's an often used passage that is largely overlooked in this particular context, which addresses it. Luke chapter 13, please turn there. You know, we have this tendency to have a double standard, and, and our sin is a little bit less than everybody else's, and that's not what the Bible says. It's a point I've tried to make here fairly well. Luke 13, 1 through 5, look what it says. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Do you really think they were worse sinners? Do you think that's why that happened to them? He said, I tell you, no. They're no worse than anybody else. They're still sinners. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you're going to perish the same way, or you're going to likewise perish. What's Jesus' point? Don't think just because that happened to them, they're somehow worse sinners. That's, that's not the case at all, and, and Jesus made that extremely clear. So in seeking to answer the question, what would you do personally? Two lesbians walked into your church just to provoke you. Perhaps the place to start to answer that question would be this. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in that case? What would Jesus have done under those same circumstances? Can we know? Well, although he never had that particular specific situation, I think we can know what Jesus would do, and, and this is why. Have you ever noticed how Jesus was never shocked? He never allowed himself to be shocked by what people did. You ever notice that? I realize he was son of God. I understand that. But Jesus was unshockable, wasn't he? They just didn't shock him. No matter what they did, they did, they did not shock him. They say that a good counselor will never show shock, no matter what they hear. You know, we need to be a people like that. We need to be, the title of this sermon tonight, by the way, is Unshockable. We need to be unshockable. How can we know what Jesus would have done? Well, try this. I'm not going to turn to this passage. You know it very well. In John chapter 4, Jesus encountered a woman of Samaria at the well. Jesus knew that she had been married not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, but five times. And he knew she was shacking up now. I mean, let's be honest. That's what she's doing. She's shacking up now. Jesus knew that, didn't he? He told her, this is your situation. Let me ask you a question. Does God hate divorce? Malachi 2.15. Yeah, he does. Yep. She'd been married and divorced five times. Jesus knew she was living in a constant state of adultery. Does God approve of adultery? Absolutely not. Nope, he does not. He hates that too. Some might even say he finds it abominable. But how do you treat the woman? With a look of disgust and disdain? Or with eyes full of love for her lost soul? 
How did he treat her? How did he look at her? How did he interact with her? How did he respond to her? With eyes full of contempt, again, let me say it again, and disdain and disgust, or with eyes full of love because he knew she was lost and he was the only way she would ever be saved? Did he respond to her with avoidance and rejection or with warm words of love and acceptance? He never accepted her sin, but he accepted her. Did Jesus respond with, with furtive glances and whispers to his disciples later on about the ugliness of her sin? Well, you know, this lady, she, is that the way he responded to that woman? Or did he respond with patience and gentleness in order to help her find hope and healing and forgiveness? We know the answer. How'd that work out? How'd that turn out for him? Because he, he never approved of her sin. We can never approve of sin. Sin is never okay. But because he showed her love and grace and compassion and, and sought an opportunity to reach out to her with that love, grace, and compassion, he was able to teach her. And as he taught her, she came to understand who he was and what he was capable of. And as she did that, she went back and she got the whole town to come to Jesus. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be awesome to have somebody walk in here who's a known sinner of any stripe and, and come over time because we're, we treat them with love in our eyes and compassion because we know they're lost and they're attracted to that and they see that, that they come to learn the absolute truth and that they go back and convict the whole town of, of, of Shoto? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome to have to put folding chairs out there in the foyer because of one conversion and who they dragged into this building? Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what happened. That's what happened. Because Jesus loved her and hated her sin. Another account of the unshockable Savior that I'd like to share with you tonight is in Luke chapter 7. Please turn there. Yeah, I think we can know what Jesus would have done. <coughs> in the situation I described at the outset. It's reflected in a lot of similar circumstances. In Luke chapter 7, in verse 36, we would begin, then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Probably like most of the Pharisees, this one was just looking for an opportunity to trap Jesus. Probably looking for an opportunity to judge Jesus and trap him, not learn from him. This man, this Pharisee, was probably at the least skeptical and at the most maniacal because this Jesus seemed to show more love for sinners than he did the law of Moses. What kind of a preacher is that? Verse 37. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, stood at his feet behind him weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Same situation. You've got a group of religious people in a house, and you've got this woman in town who is a sinner. She knows it. Jesus knows it. The crowd knows it. She's got a bad reputation. <coughs> Probably 
In, in, uh, I, would, I would say it's 100% chance, in my thinking anyway, in my opinion, that she had ever been in this house before because these types of people didn't come to this house. These types of sinners didn't come to church. But she comes in. We know what she did. John Burke, the author of the book, The Mud and the Masterpiece, had some incredibly picture-painting comments about this particular interaction. Obviously, this is not scripture, but it's very intriguing and insightful nonetheless for our putting ourselves there. Please listen. Again, it's a man's opinion, but he's trying to draw you a picture of, of this scene. Please listen. Middle Eastern dining style consisted of a one-foot-high table with pillows on the floor for seating, with people sitting usually with feet stretched out to the side or behind them. As the meal proceeded, an immoral, we don't know what her sin was, but she was immoral. She was a sinner. An immoral woman crashed the party. She sheepishly made her way over to stand behind Jesus, Luke makes sure we know that she had lived a sinful life, verse 37. She did not just have a few slip-ups, but rather had made a life out of her sexual deviancies, and everyone knew it. Her mud was public knowledge. Her whole life she had felt judged and condemned by the religious establishment, so to go into the house of her tormentors took enormous courage. Yet there she stood. She stood there because Jesus was there. Somehow word on the street had traveled to her through the crowd she hung out with that there's hope in Jesus for the muddiest human. As she stood in his presence, hope burst through the dam of all that pain that had driven her mud-slinging behavior, and she started to cry. Her tears landed on Jesus' dirty feet. By the way, his dirty feet that this highly religious group and host had not shown the common courtesy to wash, I might add. Mr. Burke goes on to say the tension in the room mounted. Everyone's shoulders tightened as she fell to her knees behind Jesus, bent down and wiped his feet. I'm sorry, bent down and wiped his wet, dirty feet with her hair. She took out a bottle of oil mixed with perfume. She took the oil in her hands and gently stroked his feet with the oil, kissing them as she anointed him with the perfume. Jesus just sat there, never flinching. Can you see it? Can you see it? Never flinching. Eyes fixed on the Pharisees, watching them react in shock and disbelief. Flames of contempt shooting out of their merciless eyes. Simon could stand it no more. The outrageous scene had proven his point. He muttered to himself and his more respectable guests, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman she is who is touching him. She's a sinner, verse 39, Luke 7. In other words, if Jesus were truly a prophet, he would know about her scandalous sexual sin, and he would be shocked. See, Jesus did know, and Jesus wasn't shocked, and Jesus wasn't repulsed by the woman, yes, by her sin, but not by her. Last two paragraphs from Mr. Burke. Now, you have to realize this was a controversial situation. Imagine a known prostitute coming up to your preacher, kissing his feet and rubbing oil on them after the Sunday morning service. 
It would be his last Sunday at most churches if he didn't put an end to it fast. What was Jesus thinking? Why didn't this shock Jesus like it would all of us? Because Jesus Christ looks at the heart. It's all about the heart. Jesus confronted the unloving hearts of his host and friends while this woman demonstrated a heart overflowing with love and a desperate need for only what Jesus could provide. We read on here in, in verse 40 and following. Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. And so Jesus said, verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman, she's anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. What a lesson for Simon and his religious friends on love and compassion. It's a love lesson that Jesus sought to teach the religious people of his day more and more. If you turn to me to the book of John chapter 8, yeah, I think we can know pretty much how Jesus would respond when somebody who's living a life of blatant sin all of a sudden comes in and how he would treat them. In John chapter 8, beginning at verse 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple. Notice he's in the temple. He's in a place where it is known for its religion, as it were. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. Scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now you know that repulsed God. You know that's a sin. You know God doesn't approve of that. Jesus didn't either. Now Moses in the law, they said, commanded us that such should be stoned. The law says... Because, you know, it's all about the law. We have no grace whatsoever. It's all about the law. And the law says she's got to die. What do you say? Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he didn't hear. So they continued to ask him. He raised himself and said to him, okay. He was without sin. Fire first. Yeah, you can read it in your own Bible. And yes, I'm paraphrasing. you've never sinned, go ahead, fire away. Let her have it. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't approve her sin. He said, don't you do that again. Sin no more. But you, I'm forgetting you go. I hate what you've done, but I love you. That great love of God brings grace and truth together. Listen, grace and truth together. 
bring hope to a broken world, brings peace and healing to a world in need of forgiveness and restoration. We talked this morning, James, uh, sorry, John 1 and verse 17, how grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and grace and truth both need to come through his people who are here now as we reflect Jesus to them. The lesson is the love of God. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, about how all those people, some of them were idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and greedy and thieves and drunkards and all that. But they were washed by the blood of Christ. They were forgiven by God because they were taught the truth and they saw something in that truth and they obeyed that truth. But they weren't chased off like the Pharisees would have. And you know, in that same epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, seven chapters later, verses 4 through 8, Paul talks about love, talks about how it's patient, how it's kind. And then it's interesting, the message he leaves them with in that same epistle in 1 Corinthians 16, take a look at this. It's all about God's love. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, look at verses 13 and 14, and again, this is the same congregation that had all those problems with sin, but they were washed and sanctified in chapter 6. It's that same congregation that he wrote to them about what love was, how it was kind and gentle. He never said, he never said, love does not obey God, because love for God is to obey his commandments. Let's keep that straight, don't ever forget that. But 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, look what the message was he left them with. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. Everything. Are we supposed to obey God? Absolutely. Do it with love. Are we supposed to, to do everything God told us to do? Yes, but do it with love. Pharisees, we saw this morning, they had this checklist mentality. They would tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, but they had neglected the weightier matters of the law, love and, and grace and mercy. He said, you've got to put those together, and we talked about that this morning, so I won't talk about it again. In conclusion tonight, just a few questions to leave us with. I know today has been very thought-provoking lessons, challenging, as one brother said this morning. we need those. In conclusion tonight, a few questions. How is, how is each one of us individually, personally, don't, don't worry about the person beside you, behind you, in front of you, don't worry about the preacher, don't worry about the elders, worry about you, unless you're a preacher or an elder. How is each one of us going to respond personally when, not if, when that homosexual couple, male or female, walks into the church building? You know what I'm going to do? I've made my plans. You know, if you make plans ahead of time for something, there's a lot better chance you carry them out when the time comes rather than trying to make a spur-of-the-moment decision. So I, I have a plan. I have made my plan. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to treat them just like any other lost soul 
who is in need of the salvation that only my Jesus can provide. That's what I'm going to do. Whether they're a smoker or a drinker or a gambler or a partier or an idolater or a gossip or a slanderer or anybody else who's lost in sin, I'm going to treat them the same way. I'm going to tell them that I'm glad they're here. You know why I'm going to tell them I'm glad they're here? Because I'm glad they're here. You know why I'm glad they're here? Because this is where they're going to hear about Jesus that can fix their problem. That's why. Sorry. I'm going to preach in a minute. I plan to be unshockable. I'm going to greet them with a smile, welcome them, and again, tell them that I'm glad they're here because I will be. Because if they're here, I will have a chance to share the good news of God's grace with them, to show them God's great love for them, to teach them the gospel of Christ, and to help them see how they need to repent and how special they are in the eyes of God and how they need to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and how they need to do all of these things, to go to heaven. They need to submit to the authority of Christ and become part of the saints, because I'll tell you what, there ain't a member of this church who did not have sins that needed the blood of Christ. Is that right? If you didn't need the blood of Christ to forgive your sins, you couldn't be part of the church because you're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And all sins an abomination to God. Isn't that, that is, having the opportunity to teach those lost in sin what we're always to be about as the unshockable servants of the unshockable Savior? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Saving the souls of those lost in sin. It begins with love. It begins with Jesus. It begins with his forgiveness. It begins with me. And it begins with you. Hopefully tonight, if you are not a member of the Lord's Church, it will begin with you as you are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you need the prayers of the church for any reason, we would love to assist you with that as well. But understand this. All sin needs the blood of Christ to cover it, no matter what it is. And we need to teach those lost in it about the love of it. If you have a need, you come to the front and we'll stand and sing.